Child care in California is a growing problem for residents. Nearly 60% do not have adequate access, and those with access must pay a high price. Tuition at a child care center averages $17,000 a year per infant in the Golden State. That's about 25% of earnings in a $70,000 a year household. To make matters worse, the supply of providers is declining. Between 2014 and 2019, over 57,000 child care centers shut their doors in California. But there is a solution, and that is to deregulate child care. Excessive regulations increase overhead expenses for providers, making it harder to get off the ground and stay afloat. For example, child-to-staff ratios limit the number of clients a provider can take in, regardless of their capabilities. One study found that increasing the mandatory child-to-staff ratio by just one child could decrease costs by up to $2,000 a year per child without compromising quality. For the sake of families in the Golden State, California should deregulate child care services. Well, thank you all and welcome back to this conference. Uh, For those of you who weren't around for the first part, I'm Michael Tanner, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Director of Cato's Project on Poverty and Inequality in California. Uh, the first part of this uh, discussion today, we've sort of set broad parameters about the need to deregulate uh, areas of the California economy in order to enable low income and traditionally underserved populations to become more of a part of it as it comes back from COVID. COVID sort of serving as an opportunity now to make some reforms that are long overdue. Our next panel is going to dive a little bit deeper into some of the areas that really need uh, reform. Uh, we have uh, three experts in their field here. Uh, first up will be Congress uh, Councilmember uh, Chris Kate from San Diego's 6th District. Uh, the councilman is a graduate of University of San Diego. We'll, uh, we'll have a little bit of a University of San Diego theme uh, today, uh, I, I think. And uh, he's been known as an expert in areas of public safety, economic development, and the environment. Uh, we're thrilled to have him with us today. Understand he may have to run a little bit early today. If the council goes into session, uh, he'll he'll be taking off. Uh, if not, he'll be with us until they do go into session. So, uh, so we're thrilled to have him with us. Uh, next up will be Anastasia Bowden, who is a bit of a Cato alumni. Uh, she used to work with our Center for Constitutional Studies. Uh, she also worked for the Washington Legal Foundation, but now she is with the an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation's Economic Liberty Project uh, and one of the nation's foremost experts on occupational licensing. We're thrilled to have her here. Uh, and then finally, we have Stephen Greenhut, who is the resident senior fellow and Western Regional Director of State Affairs for the R Street Project. And uh, he is a former columnist uh, with the San Diego Union uh, Tribune and uh, uh, written several books and uh, is an expert on California politics and regulation. So we're thrilled to have all three of them here with us today. I'm not going to waste any time because we're up against uh, the clock here. So we're going to go right into Councilman. Uh, you take it away. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak before all of you uh, at this forum and uh, provide some input on what's happening, at least here in San Diego. Uh, as I mentioned, my name is Chris Kate, and I represent the 6th Council District in the city of San Diego. I have the great fortune of representing a council district where more than one third of our residents are of Asian American descent. 
not only are the individuals within my district diverse, but so too are the businesses that call districts at home. <laughs> we have large employers such as Qualcomm, Sony, Google, Kyocera, Jack in a Box, and San Diego Gas and Electric. And we have small mom and pop businesses that are both family owned and minority owned businesses. In fact, I started a small business in this district when I was getting my degree from the University of San Diego. Like other cities across the country, San Diego residents and businesses were hit extremely hard by the pandemic. We saw many businesses close their doors, never to be opened again, and we try to take actions to allow them to keep their lights on and not shutter. Last year, our city council approved nearly $18 million for businesses as part of our small business relief program. We also work specifically with our ethnic chambers of commerce, the Asian Business Association, the Black Chamber of Commerce, the, and the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce to conduct specific outreach to these business owners to ensure that they were aware of the resources available to them. In the end, we were able to provide assistance to over 2,300 businesses that helped nearly 10,000 employees. And now we're in the process of determining whether we as a city want to continue this investment in this program. And if that is the ultimate decision by the mayor and the city council, I believe it's important we always look at ways to distribute small, distribute small business aid to minority-owned businesses more broadly. Some programs that provide small business loans and grants limit the eligibility to small businesses located in low and moderate income census tracts. However, many small and minority-owned businesses exist outside of those census tracts and yet still face many similar economic and financial barriers to success. In addition to this economic aid, we also waived fees and burdensome permitting reviews for small businesses and restaurants build outdoor decks or set up tables on sidewalks or in parking lots to provide more space for outdoor dining. Obviously being in San Diego where it's sunny every single day, this could have been a no brainer from the beginning. Suffice it to say that this has been an immensely popular program. We've also experienced a devastating hit to our tourism economy. In San Diego, tourism employs 200,000 San Diegans in a variety of positions. Due to COVID, the travel, tourism, and hospitality industry lost over 55,000 jobs. One of our main economic drivers in San Diego is our convention center. Since the pandemic, we have lost hundreds of millions of dollars in economic activity because we have not been able to host many large conventions like Comic-Con. Until we begin hosting conventions again, we won't see the thousands of direct and indirect jobs return. But there is some good news. We're starting to see a rebound we're starting to see jobs come back. Just last week, we saw our region's jobless rate fall to 6.9%. But as we continue this comeback, we have to understand the barriers that will exist for many business owners and their employees. As a father with two young children and a third on the way, I understand the importance of having childcare that allows my wife and I to work. We are fortunate that our daycare provider has remained open for the duration of the pandemic. Others who have the ability to work from home have had to be creative and manage both their children and their jobs. But there are others who don't have the ability to work from home and have to make the difficult decision, both have to make the difficult decision of choosing between their job or their children. We know that without reliable, quality, and accessible childcare, parents cannot return to work, 
food and housing insecurity persist, child poverty is exasperated, and the resulting family stress increases the incidence of child maltreatment, substance abuse, and family fracture. Recently, the San Diego YMCA conducted a survey of nearly 500 childcare providers in San Diego. In San Diego, at the height of the pandemic, we saw 54% of childcare centers and 13% of family childcare homes report being closed. As of today, 19% of childcare centers and 10% of family childcare homes are closed. Lastly, 40% of all childcare providers have reported that regulations regarding group size, group configuration, or enrollment as the top challenge in providing childcare during COVID-19. This statistic alone, combined with the fact that 61% of childcare centers and 40% of family childcare homes are not fully enrolled given current regulation guidelines, shows that regulations alone can deter the ability of parents to be able to get back to work because they don't have access to adequate childcare. But this overregulation just doesn't apply to childcare. As I mentioned earlier, I believe the city did a great job of trying to break down previously existing barriers for small business owners. As we begin to recover, we will, will we as a city continue to maintain that same approach? One of the first things we have asked our new mayor to do is make the ability to conduct outdoor dining permanent with the same speed of permanent approvals as was done during the pandemic. My district includes a vibrant Asian cultural district with some very popular restaurants. They represent the epitome of family-owned businesses that are operating on shoestring margins. They have neither the time nor the financial capacity to deal with bureaucracy. And that includes any effort to increase taxes or fees. Like other jurisdictions, we are dealing with a budget deficit. Elected officials have made many promises regarding priorities and allocating taxpayer dollars for new programs and capital projects. Now it becomes very easy to turn to voters and ask them to tax themselves to pay for these items. Ballot measures asking to increase stormwater fees to pay for state mandates or ask voters to increase the sales tax to pay for general services becomes very enticing. But I've raised the point and will continue to say, how can we as policymakers in one breath claim we understand the plight of our hardworking residents have gone through and want to help them get their financial livelihoods back in order, and in the very next breath, ask them to increase their cost of living. I believe in, believe in order for cities to facilitate the rebuilding of an inclusive economy, we have to understand the barriers for allowing residents to get back to work, to get back to rebuilding their businesses, and allow them to prosper. Thank you very much. And we appreciate your work there, and it's great to get a perspective for someone on the ground who's actually uh, having to deal with these issues. <laughs> Next up, uh, Anastasia, it's going to go over to you, and I know you've got some things to say because we've talked many a time. So let's let's hear you from this. Well, hello, everyone, and thanks to Michael, and thanks to Cato for having me. Uh, let me start by saying I love California. I am California born and raised, apart from a short stint in D.C., but California is doing basically the opposite of what you'd want to do if you care about giving people economic opportunity, and that is regulating people out of work. So I'll focus on two examples of regulatory barriers to employment, the so-called regulatory thicket and occupational licensing. 
And at the outset, when I talk about an inclusive economy, I'm talking about an economy where everyone is free to reach their potential and where nobody's fate is determined by the circumstances of their birth. Basically, we're talking about mobility. What we don't want is a cycle of poverty that traps people. We want an economic an economic system that has the fewest barriers to people pursuing a livelihood and basically pursuing their conception of happiness. And yet California puts up barrier after barrier to entry. So the first policy I wanna talk about is not actually a single policy, but it's a phenomenon. And it's a phenomenon wherein there are several policies and each one of them might in and of itself appear justifiable, but together these policies create a regulatory thicket that makes it impossible to get a job. It should not surprise anyone here that a report by the Kauffman Foundation, which surveyed 8,000 small business owners nationwide, rated California a D in terms of overall business friendliness and an F for its tax code and regulatory hurdles. Now I've written on this phenomenon, and so just to give a few concrete examples, in writing our paper, we spoke to a farmer who complained about permits. Okay, you may say, you think about a permit, it may seem pretty normal or reasonable, what's the big deal? But all told, the small farmer told us that he needed 40 permits to run his farm. It's too much. Uh, or I spoke to a woman who wanted to build a bird sanctuary in my hometown of Palm Desert. But between the public art fee, because every new development has to pay a fee, which is a percentage of the project's, uh, uh, how much it's going to cost, and it goes towards public art. Between this public art fee, the fee which was imposed on all new developments to subsidize local daycares, there's an affordable housing fee, the application fee, et cetera. It was going to cost her $150,000 in fees alone to build the bird sanctuary. And as she put it, that's $150,000 that wouldn't even get her one pound of concrete or one can of paint. It just wasn't feasible. Or to take an example from where I live in Sacramento, we spoke to a couple that had a dream of starting a West Coast microbrewery, but they were told that they would need to get special approval from the city's zoning committee, and the committee wouldn't even consider their plans until they either bought or leased the property and submitted architectural designs. And then they needed to pay a fee which was $15,000, and they decided to go to Florida instead. And the last example, because it involves a lawsuit I brought on behalf of a beloved Bay Area bookstore called Book Passage. Book Passage is a small bookstore. In addition to just selling books, it hosts author events, many author events a year where authors speak and they sign their books. And that's how this small bookstore competes with bigger bookstores. That's their competitive advantage. And as you can imagine, it's really important to the community because they represent viewpoints that are not always popular or promoted by the bigger stores or authors that aren't always promoted uh, by the popular, the bigger, more popular stores. Well, a couple of years ago at the behest of Mark Hamill, AKA Luke Skywalker, California passed a law covering all autographs worth over $5, and under that law, sellers had to produce a certificate of authenticity and maintain detailed records for seven years. And failure to keep those records, even inadvertently, or to omit anything from the records, resulted in outrageous penalties, including not only damages, but a civil penalty of up to 10 times the damages, plus court costs, plus attorney's fees, plus expert witness fees, plus interest. And until we sued and the legislature modified that law, the owner of the bookstore had said it was going to put him out of business. How is anyone supposed to start a business in this environment, let alone people with fewer means? 
If we care about getting people back to work, if we care about people escaping poverty, we have to address this regulatory thicket, which sometimes can be a very hard thing to do because it involves little individual policies that don't seem that bad, but which add up. The second thing I want to address is occupational licensure, or what I think is better called occupational licensure lunacy. Now, there is a bipartisan consensus nowadays that occupational licensure has simply run amok. Nearly a third of Americans now need a license before going to work, but California actually leads the nation when it comes to lower income occupations. That is, it is uh, the first in the nation for the most broadly and honorously licensed states. And it's not just doctors or lawyers who need these licenses, it's low risk occupations and it's low income occupations that should theoretically require very little capital to enter and therefore would make a great starter occupation for someone who's just trying to enter the workforce. So yes, in California, it's not just doctors or lawyers, it's travel agents, high school coaches, court reporters, tree trimmers, locksmiths, animal trainers, makeup artists, hair shampooers, unarmed security guards, upholsters, taxidermists, door repairs, alarm installers, and more. They all need a license before going to work. And the burden of getting a license can be substantial. In California, you have to pay $400 to get a license to be a travel agent. You have to spend $500 and four years of experience to get a license to be a tree trimmer. It takes 350 days of training and passing two exams to get a license to shampoo hair. And as become you know, kind of banal or famous now in the industry to say, that's nearly 10 times the amount of training needed to be an EMT. Washing hair is something that most people do regularly without government permission, without causing a public health crisis. This is not just, nor is it fair. And even locksmiths in California are required to get an occupational license. And there's no training or anything like that. It's just a flat fee. Why this fee? You're just burdening people from entering the trade. And who's going to be hardest hit? People who have fewer means, people who can't afford the fee or who the, the fee hits harder. So we are trapping people in poverty with government-imposed barriers to entry. And yet, despite all of these burdens, the studies bear out that licensure doesn't even improve quality. I mean, on their face, they're very often uh, there's a mismatch between the licensure requirements and the risk of the job. You get these really strange disparities, like I said, where it, it takes longer training to become a, a hair shampooer than an EMT. Or you get these disparities between states, between California and neighboring states, where California licenses a bunch of occupations that neighboring states do not, and vice versa, and yet there's no difference in outcome or in, in public safety. So it just doesn't make sense. And despite this very little effect on quality, there's very high cost to the economy. Occupational licensure costs an estimated 200,000 jobs in California per year. Now, Licensure also has a unique effect on people with criminal records. Of course, it's going to have a higher effect on this group of people who very often don't have resources to pay for the fees or to get the appropriate education and training. And even apart from that, people with criminal records are sometimes outright excluded by law from occupations, even when there's no relationship between the crime and the occupation sought. And even if there's decades between the crime and they're now wanting to reenter society. This manifested itself in the famous example in California of firefighters. California, of course, has experienced terrible wildfires. And during a wildfire sort of crisis, it used prisoner firefighters to fight these fires. 
And many of these former offenders found out once they served their time and, and left prison that they were categorically excluded from, from becoming a firefighter based on their criminal record. This despite that the state had spent resources training them while they were in prison to become firefighters. Now, that particular example has been liberalized. There's been some reform on that front, but California still excludes many people with criminal records from becoming a firefighter, even though it uses them to fight fires in prison. Employment is closely tied to recidivism. That is the tendency of past offenders to reoffend. It should not surprise us then that with California having such high barriers to employment and with broad overcriminalization, that the recidivism rate in recent years is 18% higher than the national average. So we have higher crime because we are uh, licensing people out of re-entering society once they've paid their debts to society. So what's the cumulative effect of licensure? Fewer jobs. Uh, a study from Arizona State University found that there's lower entrepreneurship given uh, high barriers to entry. California has less startups per capita today than there were in 2000. Lower economic output, fewer innovations, and because of the effect on people with criminal records, we have higher crime. Now, there are ways to protect the public apart from full-blown licensure. We can require businesses to carry a bond, to register with the state, to get private certification, et cetera. There are several forms of regulation that fall short of licensure and would do just as good of a job of protecting the public. So what's the upshot of all of this? It's that if you care about human flourishing, if you care about ending cycles of poverty and people having more economic opportunity, there is actually a very common sense solution. And that's you have to start hacking away at red tape and making it easier to get a job. And I think that's certainly something that we would want to do is make it easier for people to get a job. Uh, but surprisingly, that's not always the priority in Sacramento and in city councils everywhere. Um, going to have Steve Greenhut up next uh, with R Street. Uh, before that, I just want to remind everyone that we'd like you to be part of this conversation as well. You can, uh, on your, all your platforms, whether it's Facebook or uh, YouTube or the Cato site, uh, there's a position for you on the swap card uh, site. You can use the provided uh, place to send in your questions there. And on Twitter, of course, use the hashtag Cato California. We look forward to you being part of this. And with that, I'm going to turn it over right now to Steve. Well, thanks for having me. Um, there's this weird sense, you know, among elected officials that everything is you know, really going okay in California, despite the shutdowns, right? That we had a $15 billion uh, surplus. Uh, state leaders expected a $54 billion deficit. So, uh, you know, as AP reported, the recession wasn't as deep as they had anticipated. And of course, it's uh, because of our um, steeply progressive income tax. Um, so, but I've seen it in the housing market, in the in the car market. Uh, people, their their prices are being bit, bid up. Uh, so there's this sense that wow, people have a lot of money and things are going okay. But it's really just because of our our, our progressive income tax. And I think what what this does is it masks the devastation devastation at lower income levels and among small business owners and small landlords. So there's very serious suffering going on. And, and yet I think some of this, this good economic news has, has masked that. So California lawmakers talk excessively about helping the poor, 
boosting transfer payments, which seems to be their their main approach. But uh, let's look at what they've they've actually done. Right during the pandemic, the state government continued its policies that hit the poor where it matters most, and that's on the and and middle class people on their ability to earn a living. So first, they tried doubling down on Assembly Bill Five, and that was a response to the 2018. A state Supreme Court decision. Some people call it Dynamex. Other people call it Dynamics. Uh, but that uh, the state Supreme Court imposed an ABC test. So basically, uh, companies can't use contractors except in some narrow cases. So the the contractor must uh, have have you know have an LLC or shown that they're in, in business for themselves, be free from company direction, be outside of the scope of the company's main work, and that caused an enormous amount of problems. Uh, for average workers, uh, so much so that the, the legislature uh, received some uh, pushback that they hadn't really expected. Uh, now, the legislature could have done any number of things. They could have created a new uh, employment category. Uh, they could have overturned the decision, but instead they they codified it. But only after uh, politically influential industries were able to exempt themselves from the, its provisions. Uh, so, you know, the result was a nightmare. Uh, people were just lo- losing losing their jobs. As a freelance writer, I, I experienced it myself. I, I work full time, but I also do freelance work. And all of a sudden, uh, people who already have jobs losing losing side employment. People who who do a lot of things uh, were losing jobs. Newspaper carriers, musicians, sign language interpreters, freelance writers, photographers, Uber and Lyft were the targets, but it it impacted uh, every sort of. Uh, of, of, of job category in California. So Lorena Gonzalez, the San Diego Democrat who had authored the bill, uh, she tweeted, "Not they were not good jobs to begin with in response to uh, you know some of the angry Twitter messages she was receiving from people who had actually had their livelihoods destroyed. So you'd think in the midst of a pandemic that at the very least, the state wouldn't be outlawing work, right? We're supposed to stay at home. So freelance work, people, people doing things from their own Kitchen tables uh, were all of a sudden, uh, you know, uh, being, being uh, their work was being shut down. Um, and the state attorney general, then Javier Becerra, was uh, filing suit against companies, forcing them to comply with AB5, even before it was fully litigated and before, um, you know, there was an initiative, uh, Prop 22, on the November ballot, which exempted Uber and Lyft and other ride sharing drivers. And they were, they, so they were actively going after these companies that had provided, uh, they were providing important services for people staying at home, and they were also providing jobs at a time when people weren't having jobs. So ultimately, the legislature exempted 100 industries. That's a real mark of landmark legislation when you have to exempt everyone out of it. So what should the state do? Um, You know, first, how about doing no harm? Uh, Stop doing the union's bidding, which is one of the main problems in in the legislature, and understand that millions of Californians are dependent on contracting and other non-full-time opportunities. In cities like San Francisco, uh, they were capping commission fees on deliveries, which just made it food deliveries in the middle of the pandemic, which just made it harder uh, for uh, lower-income people to 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 get food deliveries because it it, it disincentivized uh, you know the, the, these deliveries for lower cost options and it put put poorer people out of work. You heard about the hero pay ordinances. Well, in Long Beach, it resulted in uh, I think it was Kroger that shut down three different stores. So that doesn't help poor shoppers or or workers. 
Uh, here's another thing. I mean, it's a little off uh, the regulatory thing, but how about running the basics of government properly? You might have seen the scandal at the Employment Development Department, as much as $31 billion in fraudulent or dubious claims, some filed by inmates and criminals. I mean, even in California, that's approaching real money. But the biggest EDD scandal is even as the agency was paying out absurd claims, it was not providing money to those who legitimately are entitled to it. Only 1% of calls from claimants were answered. So, uh, you know, it's not a surprise at a libertarian event, but, you know, government could start by trying to, uh, you know, fix its dysfunctional bureaucracies. So I wrote about that for my uh, Orange County Register column, and I, I got all sorts of sad stories from from people who, who weren't able to to get uh, money from claims that were, were legitimate. Now, Anastasia did a great job on the occupational licensing. At our street, we ran a bill. She had mentioned the shampooing that would have allowed people to shampoo hair. And, you know, I'm 60 years old and managed to shampoo my hair without any ill effects. And yet uh, the, the uh, legislatures, uh, the legislators, um, they they wouldn't pass, but they wouldn't pass that. So if you have to get ten months of training and nineteen thousand dollars of tuition to to get a full cosmetology license, uh, that's not helping people. That's a good example of how hard it is for people to get their foot on the ladder. It got referred to the Sunset Review Committee, which uh, doesn't do much in the way of review and never sunsets anything. Um, so our state's regulatory heavy approach makes it tough to get jobs. Um, I hire a lot of handymen. And um, instead of helping them get licenses, the state announces new crackdowns and sting operations. Uh, there was one uh, press conference from the attorney general where they talked about economic crimes and stealing revenue from the state. That seems to epitomize the mentality. So there's not a broad understanding of what needs to be done uh, to help people get a foot on the ladder and not an understanding of how all these regulations, one after another, just makes it really difficult uh, to do anything. So I think part of the, the change needs to be, um, uh, you know, attitudes at the top and an understanding of how this really affects real people. I mean, my daughter, uh, uh, she, she's uh, a Davis Aggie and she, uh, she raised goats at our, 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 uh, our property and she did that and helped put herself through, through college. And she tells the stories of, uh, you know, you can't, uh, you can't sell uh, goat milk and, uh, you know, there are new regulations on making it impossible for her to get antibiotics to treat her goats. And, and this affects people. I've covered as a, as a newspaper reporter, I've covered all the, the local uh, uh, rules, the conditional use permits that make it uh, very difficult for businesses to do everything. I, I own some properties and you have to get approval for everything, even paint colors, even when you're trying to do a historically appropriate remodel and then you have to submit your paint colors. It, it, it just gets out of hand and it's just the one after the other. Now, I, I know this is education's a little different, but uh, you know, the unions have fought to keep the schools closed. And, and that just shows, that just revised the need for loosening up the regulations on charter schools. And yet uh, Governor Newsom's gone in the other direction. Jerry Brown was good on charter schools. And, uh, you know, 55% of public school kids are Latino and 10% are Asian, 5% are black. I mean, if we want to help people get a, get a leg up uh, in our state, we need to uh, expand educational opportunities. I know Cato did a, uh, a separate seminar on, uh, on um, housing, but the housing regulations in the state have helped drive the prices up to more than $700,000 is the median price home throughout the state. 
and it's above a million dollars in the eight county bay area so um people are struggling and and they can't afford rents and there's just nothing available and so state and regional the, the state's imposing uh, some new rules um a housing plan demanding that localities approve a uh, higher number of, of of housing units which we need more housing units but the state's approach to everything is command and control and um and then uh, I, I wrote a recent book on water and our water regulations make it extremely difficult to provide abundant water resources. And that's that's uh, harming the, the Central Valley. It's harming our ag jobs. Uh, it's harming businesses. It's just another example of the way the state's regulations drive up the cost of energy, which just makes it harder for people uh, at the at the lower lower end of the economic uh, spectrum. Jerry Brown signed a human right to water law but that doesn't provide water, right? There's still Central Valley towns in, uh, that, that don't have access to potable water. So we, we never seem to address these fundamental problems, you know, even as the state continues to expand the areas that it wants to get into, like uh, uh, single-payer health care. So the good news is the state has temporarily lifted some of its regulations on restaurants, nursing ratios, alcohol delivery to deal with the pandemic, and the world didn't end. Um, some local zoning rules and parking rules have been lifted and there's no reason uh, they should be reimposed. So um, uh, anyway, that, that, that's, that's the problem we're, we're facing here. And the state, it's mainly a, an attitude change. So the, the state needs to stop doing what it's doing now and embrace uh, more of a lower regulatory approach. And my fear is that because of the good news, the good uh, economic budget news, that California will continue to boast about being the world's fifth largest economy and forget that we're also the state uh, with the highest poverty rates. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, all of you have really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have some questions now. I want to get all of you involved. And once again, you can go to your respective question areas on your site or on Twitter, use hashtag uh, Cato California. Uh, we'd love to hear more from you. And we have a question right off the bat from uh, Greg Chambers, who worries that you know about the tax policy in California, which seems to be soak the rich. Uh, what happens? You know, we're talking mostly about low-income people here. But what happens if the rich uh, pick up and leave? Uh, what happens to low-income people in that case? Anybody? Well, they don't have jobs anymore, right? I mean, that's, that's, and there's the, you know, the seen and the unseen. We don't see all the jobs and all the opportunities that were never created uh, because it's, it's such a punitive tax environment here. And I, I, when I first came to California, I went to a, um, a press conference in Vernon. It was an industrial area outside of downtown LA. And there were all the businesses there announcing where they're moving to. And, 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 you know, a day doesn't go by that someone doesn't talk to me about uh, where they're moving. And that's so, so yes, uh, businesses are leaving, but also entrepreneurial people are leaving and they're not going to be creating the jobs, uh, you know, that, that are, um, uh, you know, that are needed to help the, to help the poor. So yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Uh, Anastasia, um, question for you. Uh, one of the things that the pandemic has done is open up more reciprocity in terms of medical of occupational licensing, particularly in the medical field, because uh, basically you couldn't handle all the, uh, the all the people with COVID and had to import nurses and physicians from other areas, uh, and that uh, the medical reciprocity became a, a thing. Uh, 
uh, does that open up possibilities for reciprocity in other other areas? Uh, yeah, I like to think so. It has been interesting with the pandemic that states have had to ease medical restrictions on medical entrepreneurship in order to solve the health crisis. So, you know, it became apparent very quickly that uh, nurses and other medical professionals could not travel to other states when there were hot spots. <clears throat> flaring up or, um, you know, people couldn't change departments quickly. Uh, there are scope of practice rules where, you know, nurses and ERs that have to be under a certain um, doctor. And then if they wanted to move quickly to cardiology or what have you, if they wanted to move around, they couldn't. And so just to deal with the pandemic, we have seen some eases on um, medical entrepreneurship. Same goes with t uh, telehealth. Telehealth, it turns out, has been extremely neglected. And I think it's mostly been antiquated, although in recent years, there's also uh, been some um, anti-competitiveness and croniness going on where traditional practitioners didn't want to compete with people who were using technology to do telehealth. But as soon as the pandemic came and we you know, the government was telling us we all had to stay home. We need to stay home to contain the spread. Well, then telehealth became more important than ever. And so and so COVID has really forced us to deal with some of these restrictions in the medical field. And I think that's an opportunity to say, hey, there's nothing really different between the medical field and other forms of entrepreneurship. If anything, usually the medical field is considered, you know, the really dangerous place where re more regulation is needed than ever. And if we can use that as an example and say, look, opening this up to people licensed in other states did not create an influx of incompetent practice practitioners, other states are equally good at, at regulating their, their licensees, then, then that's a good thing. But I will add that, you know, we've seen a move to compacts and a move to recognition of licenses from other states, but that's not exactly a silver bullet approach. And I don't think it's a panacea because, um, you know, it's second order to just reducing occupational licensure in the first place. What we need is not to recognize license, recognize licenses from other places. What we need is to reduce those barriers. So it's certainly a step in the right direction, um, but there's more that can be done. Uh, one of the things people talk about a lot, as I think Steve mentioned, there's economic recovery, the economy starting to build back again. But increasingly, we keep hearing about it being a K-shaped recovery. That essentially, if you're a white collar worker, uh, if you're in the upper income spectrum, you, yeah, not only did you not, you know, are you recovering now, but you didn't really take a hit in the first place. You picked up your computer, you went home. Uh, all the folks up there in Silicon Valley simply, you know, went back to their uh, their house and, and worked from there, and they're going to keep working from there. Uh, but if you worked uh, in a manual trade, if you were customer facing, if you were in the hospitality industry or something of that nature, you uh, you were out of luck. Uh, in particular, it seems some of these regulations in terms of occupational zoning laws and things of that nature make it particularly difficult for people in those type of jobs uh, to to adjust. Um, what do you have to say about that, anybody? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's definitely true. And the other big part of it is, uh, you know, our, our state's uh, public employees are are. Uh, uh, you know, staying, they're still they're still getting paid. It's the the tech industry and kind of these upper middle jobs, and our public employees are paid uh, extremely well. But yeah, the, these you can't really start. Uh, Anastasia pointed to the the brewery, I believe, or, or um, uh, it's it's very difficult to start a business, and uh, and that's what we need more of. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. It brings to mind for me how barriers to entry are inherently regressive. And that's because, you know, any making it more expensive and more difficult to enter a trade is going to be 
felt more keenly by people who have fewer resources to weather the storm or fewer resources to surmount that barrier. And the other way that regulation is inherently regressive <laughs> That the people who are going to be harmed are those who are politically, uh, who lack political clout, political power, and therefore lack the resources to protect themselves through the political process. And that's why reform is so difficult. Is that um, you know the, the groups that are being harmed don't have the political clout to to get these laws pushed back. Instead, you get these very powerful interests who recognize the power of occupational licensing and other barriers to entry to shut out competition, and they don't want reform and they push back against reform. And that's why I find, you know, that Steve and I both have horror stories of trying to to pass uh, reform bills through the legislature. Um, and, and, you know, my job is to go to the courts when the legislature fails us. And we find that it often does for these politically powerless groups and that courts are really our only recourse for change and the protection of individual liberty. Yeah, that sort of brings up my next question to both of you was right in there is how do we fix this? because you do have this dichotomy of power. Basically, the people who are connected, the people who are in there now uh, do well. Uh, we're gonna hear uh, our, our luncheon speaker, our keynote speaker is gonna talk about the neo new feudalism that's coming, where essentially the elites uh, uh, are in power and control things and everyone else sort of gets left behind. Uh, what, you know, what can these powerless groups, minority groups, uh, communities of color uh, do in, in terms of fighting the, the, the the system. Wow, that's you know uh, it, that's really hard. I mean, if it's, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, well, I, I think the union. You know, I've written a lot about the union influence, right? And they're, they're just so it's such an immovable object in the in the state legislature. So even you know even like the the education example, uh, people from a broad political perspective have recognized uh, the impact impediment that the, the unions unions provide for education and, and police reform and all sorts of things. And yet it's very rare to see any any sort of change. And then at the local level, you know, local local governments are a big part of the problem, on, especially on these uh, land use issues. And it's not just a lot of folks who claim they believe in limited government. It doesn't seem to apply if it if it's means building something near their house. So, uh, and political organizing hasn't really, uh, really done very much. Uh, but, but my argument, I, I guess, has always been that we, that you build, you build the case and you, you create the ideas and you get the ideas out there. And sometimes something will happen. And, and, and surprisingly, uh, like for instance, the Cal California's redevelopment agencies, I had been ranting about those uh, uh, for years. A lot of people had, we, we had built a coalition uh, pointing to the way those those redevelopment agencies uh, abuse property rights, abuse eminent domain, micromanage decisions at the local level. And it just seemed like impossible to get any kind of reform. And then the state had a budget crisis and Jerry Brown needed money because they essentially are state agencies. And he eliminated redevelopment agencies. And the ideas were out there. And some of like uh, assembly, former assemblyman Chris Norby, who was active in this, he had, I, I could almost read in the governor's uh, um, legislative effort to remove it, uh, read the ideas uh, that, that Chris and others had, had uh, explained to him. So I guess we just keep pointing it out and, and, and hope that at some point uh, some lawmaker will, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll join in. I mean, I saw, uh, it was a 
fairly, a very liberal lawmaker just proposed a reform to Proposition 65 because of the impact. That's that's, you know, the warning labels that you see everywhere that no one has any idea what you're supposed to do about it. Uh, you go to Disneyland warning uh, chemicals known to cause cancer or whatever. And, and that's because of Prop 65. And yet uh, uh, there, there's a proposal now that would at least require a, a, a larger, uh, uh, at least require uh, uh, an opportunity for the business to fix whatever uh, might be wrong before um, getting sued. And that was because of the impact it's having on uh, um, on the Asian community. So, so we just keep the ideas out there and hope that uh, uh, people start listening. Yeah, Anastasia, I'm going to ask you for get some optimistic uh, ideas on how to how to win these things. Especially, you look at the history of the, of many of these laws, occupational licensing, occupational zoning. We're beginning, you know, finally to have a racial reckoning in this country and recognizing the long term impact of systemic racism in this country. These these are clear examples of that. Uh, some of the earliest uh, occupational restrictions were on Chinese laundries in the, in the Fresno area. I believe it was one of the first. Uh, the, the zoning ordinances, uh, both occupational and uh, and residential, were designed to keep the suburbs lily white, and we still see outcomes from them today. Is there a, a broader coalition that can be built out there that could take on some of these very entrenched special interests? Yeah, so um, I think there absolutely is, and part of it has just been a messaging problem. I think people who have been talking about these ideas for a long time have not been doing it in a way that appeals or makes us sound empathetic to the plight of people who need economic opportunity. Um, you know, I have a, a thing in front of me right here. It's a little RBG quote because Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been my, uh, you know, she's been my inspiration in one of the lawsuits that I'm, I'm bringing against a California law, incidentally. And she says, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join you. We have won the debate in terms of economics. I mean, it's almost universally recognized that the free market, lower barriers to entry, provides better prosperity, you know, better paths to uh, uh, human flourishing, better innovation. We've won the economic debate. What we haven't won is the messaging debate. And I think we need to, to message in a way that's more appealing to people. Um, another, another cause for optimism is I think that the courts are starting to recognize the importance of economic liberty when the legislator uh, legislatures are failing us. Um, you know, we've, like I said, Steve and I have gone to the legislature. And if you try to, for example, deregulate hair shampooing, you get a coalition of licensed hair shampooers who show up and tell you that, you know, the, the heavens will fall if you deregulate. <laughs> Um, but then, you know, we we go to the courts and, and we put the, the government to the test and, and force them to prove that the laws are necessary. And, and we're seeing laws being struck down that way. So that's a cause for some optimism. And lastly, I think some a cause for optimism is that there has to be uh, a correction coming because for too long, as Steve said, we've had so much prosperity in this state. It's a it's a people have wanted to be here. It's the, you know, we have so much sunshine, it's beautiful and people will stay despite the bad regulatory environment. But recently it's gotten so bad that people are leaving. And I think businesses are starting, you know, Tesla, HP, Oracle, others are throwing up their hands and saying, this is too much. With AB5, we saw Uber and Lyft say, 
We're not going to operate in California if this stays on the books. We can't. You know, maybe in decades past, businesses have just sucked it up. And here we had a business actually threatening to leave. And I kind of felt like that's great. More power to you because, you know, consumers need to feel the effects of the bad regulation in order for there to be a correction. And so maybe as more businesses and residents, frankly, are fleeing, um, you know, we'll start to feel the consequences and maybe there will be a natural correction in favor of, of the free market. Yeah. On on AB5, I mean, the, the legislature felt a lot of pressure and they, they did, uh, you know, they didn't go far enough. They didn't overturn the law, but they did exempt more than 100 companies. And then voters overwhelmingly favored Prop 22, which exempted the drivers. So I think if we look at the um, state initiative results, we'll find that uh, the voters can be a lot more uh, thoughtful and uh, supportive of these kind of reforms than uh, than the, the lawmakers certainly are. And that's that's an area of hope. I mean, I usually not the person to offer any optimism, but I, I'm a little bit optimistic. What would you look at for low hanging fruit then? What what's uh, out there that you think, you could, you know, moving forward, if we're going to do something in the next uh, legislative session or whatever, where would you uh, say it's low hanging fruit to deregulate something and create more jobs and entrepreneurship in California. Well, one thing I'll tell you that we tried that didn't work is, and I think Steve and I both <laughs> did it independently, was to target some occupations where it just seemed obvious on its face that these laws were overly onerous. So, you know, Steve tried hair shampooing. You know, we picked out a couple in conjunction um, with a senator from down south that just seemed like everyone had to agree it was everyone had to agree it was ridiculous. But what happened, like I said, is that when you call somebody out, then you necessarily get participants from that industry to come out and defend the law. So we realized that is not a good tactic. I don't think low hanging fruit in that sense works. I think what might be better are some structural changes. Um, you know, I think, uh, uh, well, sunset laws, California already has sunset laws, and we find that that laws do not come down. Once they're on the books, it's very hard to get them repealed, even through the sunset process. But maybe creating barriers to laws getting on the books in the first place. So, you know, passing a law like they have in states like Arizona and other places that say that a law cannot come onto the books that barriers economic that sorry that burdens economic liberty unless there is a clear justification for it and the government can prove at the outset that uh, that there are, the benefits are more than the burdens and that there's a, a clear connection to public safety so i think some structural changes that way um, are less offensive because they don't call any one person out and i think i think medicine is also a good place to start because of covid i think telehealth things that uh, allow sort of innovation and technology to shine because people are recognizing the importance of staying home, of getting services from home, of utilizing technology. I think those are maybe some places to start for reform. Yeah. You know, I like some of the tele telehealth reforms. Like in, in Arizona, Governor Ducey uh, signed into law something that allows Arizonans, they can consult with um, the, the best specialists anywhere, whether they're in Ohio or New York or, or Washington State. So I think that's that's kind of, that might be one that 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 might get some interest. Um, but Anastasia's right. I mean, the reason we picked the 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 shampooing one was we looked through uh, the the, the uh, occupational licensing rules and which one seemed the most ridiculous. And that one seemed pretty high on the ridiculous. Uh, the locksmithing was ridiculous, but it didn't really impose a lot of burdens other than a fee. So the shampooing was was ridiculous. 
And um, and then I remember the, the, the state agency responsible for it, they had said, well, that's not really an issue. People don't want to just shampoo hair. And yet it was their eighth question on their frequently asked question is, can I just shampoo hair? So obviously it impacts uh, some people. And yet that, that didn't go anywhere. And the, the main opposition was uh, was from the schools that provide the, uh, the, the, the costly education. So so then on the other hand, uh, you know, Senator John Morlock, former Senator Morlock, had proposed a, a broader licensing bill that dealt with a whole lot of things. So instead of looking at the low hanging fruit, just picking out something like shampooing, he tried to do a more comprehensive reform. And then that was referred to like 5000 committees and was dead on arrival. So uh, neither thing works. And then the Sunset Review Committee doesn't work. That's just an excuse that legislators can use uh, to say, oh, look, we're, we're seriously considering it, but they'd never sunset anything. Um, so, you know, I think we get back to the same old things like uh, political pressure. Um, and uh, and maybe in California, you know, the, the initiative process, may, maybe there's a place for some sort of uh, initiative reform. I mean, not, not reform of the initiative, uh, process, but some sort of reform that could be passed through the initiative process that has a lot of problems and it's costly. But I, I think the public would certainly uh, uh, certainly be uh, sympathetic to something packaged correctly and put on a statewide ballot. I, I want to go back to childcare for a minute, a moment. Unfortunately, the councilman had to leave because he's been a leader on this. But it does strike me that the childcare is a huge problem. Been on one for a long time in California. Uh, that a majority of Californians live in childcare deserts where they don't have access to, to childcare. It's only gotten worse during the, the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, uh, childcare centers were closing on a regular basis and, and were being priced out. $17,000 per child average cost of childcare in the state. Uh, what would you recommend in terms of making changes there? Obviously, you have to balance safety and health issues, but you know some of the regulations and some of the uh, requirements that you have uh, so many education credits before you can be a childcare worker and all that sort of thing seem designed to benefit big daycare and the big industrial concerns rather than sort of the mom and pop operations that people actually tend to prefer. Yeah, I think everyone, of course, worries about safety of children. It's one of those areas where where you get a lot of resistance to reform because, you know, it involves children. Um, but if you look to other states where there is less regulation, you don't find that there are poor outcomes. So it's helpful to do that. Um, I don't know if I could point to any one policy in California to change with regards to child care, except for maybe, you know, there are very strict restrictions on the number of kids per person that you can have, you know, without any relationship to any mitigating factors or your level of qualification. And I think one size fits all policies like that tend to drive up costs and have an ill fit to protecting public safety. Um, and I, you know, I will point out that I think it was in DC a few years back, they, you know, for the children, they passed a law that said that any daycare, daycare worker needed to have a college education, which immediately put, you know, thousands of daycare workers out of work and drove up the cost. So, I mean, I, I, those are two things that drive me personally crazy. Um, but generally, I think just taking a look and comparing to other states that have deregulated is really helpful to to calm people's fears when it comes to this and to combat that sort of knee-jerk uh, reaction that regulation necessarily protects the public. 
Yeah, that DC regulation was interesting. I noticed that DC uh, people could become parents without having a college education, uh, but somehow their their childcare provider then had to have one. Uh, we also had a rule that they had to be bilingual. I think that was in Alexandria, Virginia. So uh, some things to look at there. Uh, we'll leave, we're going to be leaving you in just a moment, but I wanted to leave you just see if you had some comments on this. It's been kind of a back and forth on the, what's driving housing costs in California back on the virtual platforms, people going back and forth on this, uh, between whether it's land costs or zoning or CEQA or all of these things combined, uh, where, where lies the, uh, the blame there? Yes, all of those. So, <laughs> so yeah, too bad the councilman's not here, but I, I remember when, when I was working for the Union Tribune, I had researched the, um, uh, in San Diego specifically, and, and the regulations add like 40% to the price of a new single family house. I mean, you know, con consider that amount of money. And of course, the land scarcity is a problem. It's not because land is actually scarce, but because land is undevelopable because of government regulations. And that's not included in the in the in the uh, regulatory costs, as I understand it, when when we do these formulas of how much regulations drive up the cost of uh, of um, housing. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's a regulatory problem. And then, you know, a lot of conservatives have opposed, uh, you know, these efforts to uh, increase, uh, you know, get rid of single family only zoning or to to allow the, the construction of mid rise condos and apartments along old commercial strips. I'm all for that. The problem is the people promoting that are also against the development in uh, of suburban development. So they're not really for more housing necessarily, but for, they're for more of the housing that they like. And that's where, where we end up. So this local nimbyism, and as someone who covered, you know, Orange County um, and covered it at a local level on, on the editorial page, um, you know, you, you're going to, it doesn't matter how conservative the community is, uh, they're going to oppose efforts to increase density and build new housing. So it's, it's a combination. And, uh, you know, of course, state policies. I remember when, when it was Attorney General Brown appointed to Marin County as the ideal for a global warming friendly development pattern, well, in Marin County, uh, it's, it's such, such low density uh, that the prices, uh, even back then, this was like 15 years ago, was was over a million dollars. So uh, that's not the approach. Limiting greenfield development and cramming everyone into into one footprint and slow growth policies are, 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 are what's uh, driving up the price of housing. Yeah, I, I only wanted to add something completely unrelated, which is I thought of low-hanging fruit in California, and that is teledentistry. And that's because Draymond Green supports reform in teledentistry, and he is a celebrity. I mean, Golden State Warriors player Draymond Green, if he if he uh, is a proponent, who could not be? And that's because the, the, the dental board here has been really trying to make teledentistry impractical. Um, it wants you to have to go get an x-ray prior to any teledentistry visit, regardless if the teledentist thinks it's necessary or not, because x-rays are lucrative for traditional dentists. And Draymond Green has been very outspoken about this because he grew up with braces in a, in a under a single mother who worked very hard and he understands how hard it can be to pay for things like that. And so, uh, you know, if we have Dream Draymond Green on our side, I think that makes our, our fight a little bit easier in California for deregulation. Dental hygienists, for example, who cannot practice on their own but have to be overseen by a dentist if all they're doing is cleaning teeth, 
you know, again, that seems to be the type of entry level position that a lot of people could uh, could move into. All right, I, I do want to uh, say thank you to, to you folks. Uh, really appreciate it uh, to the councilman. I wish he could have been long longer, but he had some great things to say, and you guys have been terrific in all this. So really appreciate that. Uh, we're going to take another 15-minute break here. Uh, coming up, we're going to have our keynote address by Joel Kotkin. That'll start at noon Pacific time. Uh, for those of you who are on the virtual event platform, we hope you'll continue the discussion and continue networking in our uh, and continue the discussion of regulatory form in the breakout room that's provided for that. Other than that, I expect to see everyone back at noon, and we will have a couple more speakers today. Thank you.